Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of our ADRA Canada Insider. We're so happy that you've joined us today. This is a podcast where you can meet some of the people that work here at ADRA Canada and uh, hear their stories as they return from their travels, coming back from the field where ADRA works around the world. Today, we have uh, two of our regulars with us at our table, Michael and Heather. Hello. And as our guest today, we have Sharon from our programs department at ADRA Canada. She's going to tell us all about the largest project that we are running here at ADRA Canada right now, the Embrace Project. But before we do that, Sharon, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Sharon Jobo, and I am the Associate Director responsible for project management. And at the moment, I'm leading the Embrace team, uh, the Embrace Project, which is a project that is helping mothers and children in uh, five countries of uh, Cambodia, Myanmar, the Philippines, and Rwanda. The fifth country is Canada, where we are doing awareness raising on the importance of maternal and child health. Oh, okay. Good. Uh, one thing I learned very quickly about Sharon since she came to the office is that this is something she's extremely passionate about. Once she gets talking about it, it becomes so much more than just a project. You can tell that it's something that's really near and dear to her heart. So I look forward to hearing more about that from Sharon. But first, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how it is that you came to be in this kind of field and then especially how it is that you came to Adra Canada? I was born and raised in Zimbabwe and I am third of seven children and I'm the oldest girl. I have one sister, so there's five boys and two girls. Oh and, and so that's why you're the queen. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was raised by my grandmother who was widowed when I was 12. Mm. So for most of my teen and early adult life, I was with my grandmother who single-handedly raised me, my siblings and my cousins. After I finished uh, high school, there was an opportunity for me to go and study journalism. And I started my career as a, as a journalist in Zimbabwe, and I worked as a journalist for more than eight years. Wow. What Has, years were those in Zimbabwe? That was from 1992 to uh, 2000. Okay. Mm -hmm. So those were very interesting years in Zimbabwe as a journalist. As a journalist uh, in Zimbabwe, and I actually worked internationally. I traveled as well with the then head of state on international assignments because I had risen to senior reporter. So I would travel internationally to the United Nations and cover other significant events like the war in the DRC and all those uh, interesting places mm. and also to see the transition in South Africa from apartheid to right. uh, what it is uh, currently. So yeah, that was a very uh, interesting time to be a journalist. When you say head of state, who were you traveling with? I was traveling with the president, wow. uh, Robert Mugabe at the yeah. time, who was uh, who retired with some uh, help Just uh, in November <laughs> of 2017, yeah. yes. So you were a journalist in Zimbabwe. You and your family make their way to Canada. You're living and working in the Toronto area. Uh, how did you come to work at Adra Canada? The ad for this position popped up and I'm like, I know Adra, I'm Adventist, I know who they are. <laughs> and I looked at the ad and I read it through, but the closing date had passed. Hmm. But something kept pushing me. So I saw who it reported to and I called <laughs> and it was uh, Annalyn Bruce, the program's director. And I asked to talk to her and she was there and she, I was transferred and she picked up the phone and said, oh, I saw the ad. Are you still looking? The date is closed. And she said, yes. And I said, well, I'm interested. She says, oh, send in your application. But I didn't let her go. I kept asking and I started telling her about myself. I said, well, I'm interested. This is what I bring. I had just finished my second master's degree in global health. And I had done a thesis on uh, maternal health. Mm. Mm. After we hung up, I submitted my application and uh, I was surprised things moved very quickly after that. That was around January. 
And I had an interview, came in uh, for a second interview, and I was offered the position. I remember coming in on a Tuesday, and on Thursday, I was off to Cambodia for the project wow. kickoff. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. So that's how I landed at Adra, Canada. And mm -hmm. uh, so I've been there now for two years. Hmm. All right, Sharon, that's a very wonderful uh, story about how you came to Adra. And we're glad that you've joined us today because uh, you've just recently done some travel, haven't you? And we want to talk to you about your trip. Where did you go? So I traveled recently to three countries. I went to Rwanda, Myanmar, and Cambodia. Okay. Yes. And this is for the Embrace program, right? This was uh, specifically for our Embrace project, which is the Maternal and Child Health Project. Yes. And so what does Embrace stand for? I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish you could see the look she just gave Michael. Enhancing child something. So usually our projects, project names are actually acronyms for the full name, which yes. is very long, almost impossible to remember. So we just go with the acronym yes. and then a basic definition is or explanation. En enhancing newborn and child health. Embracing Embra maternal, newborn, child, child health, health in remote communities, communities through equity. Amen. Hey, good job. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> See what teamwork does. Yeah, look at that. We'll, we'll get it eventually. But well, in short, it is embrace, which yeah. is saving the lives of mamas and babies. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Put it, I like that version better yeah. in basic terms. Yeah. <laughs> Saving the lives of mamas, mama, mamas and babies. Mamas yes. and babies. Okay. Well, that sounds like a, a good project, you called it, rather than a program. I usually call it program, but you're, you're, you almost corrected me there saying project. Yes. The difference between a project and a program is that a project runs for a defined period. In this case, this Mamas and Babies uh, project is running for four years, okay. beginning 2016 to 2020. And then a program would be more longer term, uh, 10 to 15 years. Oh, okay. Yes. So that's the key difference. Right. So these mothers and babies and children who need saving, what is putting them at risk? And when we say saving, what do we mean? Saving them from what exactly? Poverty is the major determinant. Mm -hmm. What we see is that women and children in poor countries tend to not have the health that we enjoy in developed countries such as, uh, as Canada. In poor resourced uh, countries or communities, there is a poor water supply, so they don't have access to clean and safe water. Mm -hmm. And then that predisposes them to being sick from waterborne diseases. Mm -hmm. And they don't have the facilities that they need when they are sick to go and get timely and quality health services. So they end up dying from what are preventable diseases, for example. Mm. And uh, with poverty as well, the children don't go to school for as long mm. as they would if they were in a developed country. So the dropout rates are higher. And sometimes some children are not even enrolled in school. Education is critical in the sense that the more educated you are, the more likely you will get a job that allows you to earn an income that can sustain you and the family that you will have. And when we come specifically to maternal health, women with a higher level of education tend to be better equipped to make choices around how many children they want to have and how far apart those children should be and when to have those children. Also, when girls stay longer in school, it means they are safer from being married at an earlier age. Mm -hmm. And when children are married at an earlier age, I don't even call that a marriage. It's just I don't have a better word to describe that sexually abusive relationship that the children find themselves in. 
when the children enter into that relationship earlier because there's nothing else for them to do, they are not in school, when they become uh, pregnant, their bodies are not ready to mm -hmm. carry a baby. And actually, pregnancy-related causes are among the leading causes of death for mm -hmm. girls between the ages of uh, 15 and 19. Wow. So those points are poverty-driven, mm -hmm. uh, lower education, not having access to some of the basic needs like uh, health, water, and, and stuff like that. When they are in a remote community, it means that they don't have access to even... Um, let's say before they uh, get pregnant, when they become sexually active, whether it's uh, by choice or they are being forced, which is what we find in most cases, that they are forced into a sexual activity. They don't have access to family planning. They don't have access to information or services that can help them uh, mitigate some of the negative impact of being in a sexual relationship so that they don't end up with an unintended pregnancy. And then also once they are pregnant, they don't have access to the health checkups that we all know and are used to here the in Canada. The prenatal exams. Mm -hmm. Yes, the prenatal exams where they go, they check their iron levels, they check to see if there are any complications and uh, the medical uh, facility can be prepared for that or they can refer them to a better equipped facility. Those services tend to be non-existent. Mm. And in so, the remote villages. In the remote villages, absolutely. And for the younger mothers, most of them do end up or many of them do end up as complications mm. so when they go to a local mostly ill-equipped health post and they present with a complication and they cannot be referred to a better facility in a timely manner that could result in very grave outcome for the mother and or child so how is adra addressing this these delays or the, this lack of um, access? So we start by addressing those root causes, trying to understand some of the practices within the households, within the communities that lead to women, including young girls, having unintended pregnancies. In Rwanda, for example, we are working with youth clubs where we provide information about uh, sex and sexuality and reproductive health and the consequences and just risky behavior. Mm -hmm. And once we train them, they become peer educators. They go into their communities and they talk to their peers about mm -hmm. what they have learned. And uh, in addition to that, we work with the health facility staff to train them to be sensitive to the needs of the young people specifically. Young people, for example, even if we had a health facility within their community, they feel safer when they go to a health facility that is further from their home because they have the protection of anonymity. Oh, mm. yeah. Yes. So what we do in those cases is... Uh, we are working with the youth clubs to see how we can support them to have the economic means for them to travel to that health facility that they prefer to mm. go to. Mm. So uh, Embrace is helping with transportation costs? We are or? not helping with transportation costs as such, but we are setting up community-based systems that allow the communities to mobilize their own resources. So some of the systems that we are establishing is communities contribute. It's a nominal amount every month, or some of them do it weekly, depending on how frequently they meet. And they pull this money, which works uh, kind of like an, an insurance scheme. 
so that if anyone needs to go to a health facility, they have that. But that is uh, for the adult groups. For the youth groups, uh, specifically in Rwanda, where I've just come back from, is we are still working out what that could look like for the youth. Mm. But we realize that the solution that we have for the adults, which is to bring the health facility closer to the home, is not really the solution that works for the young people. Right. They prefer to be further. Uh-huh. from the home. So we have to work with that. So we have to empower the youth economically for them to be able to travel to where they need to access services. More importantly, we want them to be able to travel after the project has wrapped up and ended. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that it is uh, sustainable. And then so that is the economic uh, side of it, the social side of it. But uh, medically, what we are doing to provide access to services, we will be constructing delivery rooms in maternity ward in Rwanda, uh, halfway homes in the Philippines. So we go to the existing uh, health centers that are within the communities and we are expanding those by including uh, delivery and waiting rooms Mm. so that those facilities become birthing centers. Okay. So instead of uh, women and their supporting family members traveling to a facility that is far from home to safely deliver a baby, they can do that closer to home. So expanding existing Mm. uh, facilities. And uh, in the Philippines specifically, because of the geography of that area where these islands and things like that, it is even more difficult to travel particularly in an emergency. Mm. So what we are doing in the Philippines, we will be constructing what we call halfway uh, maternity homes. So the woman and her supporting uh, family member will travel to this halfway home closer to their uh, due date, and they will stay there Mm. uh, where they will be much closer to the health facility so that when the contractions start, they can just uh, transfer from the halfway home to the health facility. Are they able to bring their children with them when they're waiting for the contractions to start? Not the children, but they can bring uh, one family member, the spouse or whoever. And that's a very important uh, point uh, on the children. So what we do in all our program activities, we try to make sure that there is a safe childcare. Because one of the reasons why women do not attend some of these opportunities, it's because they have this gender role of uh, taking yeah, care of Yeah, who's going to look after my children ch- while I go to the birthing center, right? Exactly. So we are building communities. And um, when we have meetings, we make sure that we provide uh, child care within the community. Not that we, as the Embrace Project, provide child care, but we facilitate for the community to be aware of the need that... Uh, for women to have an equal opportunity, we have to free them from this childcare role whenever there are such things like a meeting and things like that. And what we see happening is that there is a lot of the community coming together. So if already someone in the community has been taking care of the children while the women and men are doing the cooking demonstrations, which are part of the project, it will be easier to ask for support mm. when the woman has to go for a few days. Uh, what were they the doing delivery. in the Philippines in the remote villages before Embrace came and started working there? Were they just having the baby at home with a traditional birth attendant? Or what was the practice in some of these remote villages where Ad was working before we started there? Mm-hmm. For the most part, yes, that is what was happening. Uh, women were delivering at home. And is that why we ha- see such high death rates for pregnant women is because they're doing it at home with a a traditional birth attendant? Yes. And uh, in responding to that, I would like to acknowledge that the traditional birth attendants have a lot of knowledge. They're very knowledgeable and uh, many of them are skilled. 
because they've been doing this for generations and there are many thriving children in that com in the communities who were delivered by the traditional birth attendants. And uh, it is correct as well that uh, a lot of deaths could have been avoided if we had delivered. Because the, of the complications that might arise. The complications and there's also basic things as well like uh, hygiene. Uh, we talked about uh, the importance of uh, water. So some communities don't have water, so you're skimping on the water. And the delivery process, it's very, there's a lot of water that is involved in cleaning and things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So when that is there, it compromises mm -hmm. the mother and the child. So we are advocating for delivery at a health facility to not only handle complications when they arise because the health worker at the health facility can immediately refer to the next level, but it's also more comfortable and things like that. What we learned from the traditional birth attendants is also their holistic approach mm. to caring for a woman who is delivering. They provide a meal for her. They cook her meal. And while the woman is resting, they take care of her child. So those are some of the good practices that we are realizing draw women to the traditional birth attendants. So we are picking and learning from the traditional birth attendants and training our health uh, facility-based workers to be sensitive right. to that and as much as possible uh, I, provide I can see those if a woman, services. Yeah. If a woman has known the local traditional birth attendant in her village has grown up knowing her, is a friend of hers, why she would want her friend to be the attendant rather than going to a distant clinic and having someone she doesn't even know be the one that delivers her baby. Exactly, because a lot of uh, times, a lot of women complain that the health workers at the health facility, they are rude. Rude. Yes. <laughs> so our project is also working with the health workers, training them on particularly the area of sensitivity and uh, being also welcoming to the woman's uh, supporting family member right. because many times at the health facility, the men particularly did not feel welcome. Mm. Mm. Yet during that time or immediately after, that's when we start to talk about uh, contraception and family planning. So if we are not welcoming to the man and he's not in the picture and we want to introduce our family planning to the woman on her own, we are realizing that it will not stick or she will not be as open or accepting to that. But if we make our health facilities more open and welcoming, particularly to the men, these things will work much better. The woman's next baby will not be within a few months, but hopefully spaced to give the woman's uh, body time to rest and recover and right. to be ready and to make sure that she is ready for the next child and it's not an unplanned pregnancy because she had no access to family planning. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. So we've talked at length about the risks that um, women are facing, especially women who become pregnant and the different complications and things that can come up. But I know Embrace also addresses uh, the risks that children are facing, particularly two years and younger, the first 1,000 days, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So for the 1,000 days, we start counting those days from uh, gestation. Mm. And uh, the Embrace project is particularly looking at uh, nutrition. Nutrition is a big part of the Embrace project where we are addressing nutrition for the pregnant mother. Mm -hmm. And after delivery, part of the training for the mothers and the community at large, because it's the community that supports, it's about building an environment that is supportive to the woman as she makes the decisions about her body, about herself, right? Mm -hmm. So our training is community 
forecast so that everybody in the community understands and is supportive. So the training will focus on what the woman needs to eat during a pregnancy and what needs to happen immediately after when the child is born, putting the uh, baby to the to the breast uh, so that the baby gets that first milk. And in some cultures there's a belief that that milk is not good mm. oh, right wow. <laughs> so when we train uh, focusing in some communities on the grandmothers because they are the ones that have the authority they More pass influence. down yes yeah. so we target the grandmothers in those specific communities so that they are the ones who are championing putting the baby to the breast mm. uh, after after delivery and we have uh, growth monitoring from when the baby is born supporting in most cases the minister of health making sure that um, they have the resources we have used the project money to purchase scales and uh, whatever tools are required to monitor the growth of the infants the babies and children and by continuously monitoring the growth of the children we are able to quickly identify children who may be at risk of becoming malnourished mm -hmm. and uh, we can do something about it this is our second year of the project and as we go into the third year in the communities where we are working we are now being intentional about attaining a status of zero malnutrition we have the odd cases where a child will be malnourished. We do the intervention where we are doing the feeding, which we call the rehabilitation, and it's combined with training of the caregiver. Mm -hmm. So when we've done that and the child is now well nourished, in some few cases, we've seen the children come back. So in those cases, we want to go into the home to understand why is it that the child continues to be malnourished and we can address those root causes? Mm -hmm. uh, because ideally in the third year, we should be having very few uh, cases of children being malnourished. Nutrition is key to making sure that the children uh, survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what types of training do you give? Maybe you could talk, first of all, a little bit about how you do educate mm -hmm. the families and mothers in particular uh, in regards to nutrition. We have our project staff and we work hand in hand with the local uh, Minister of Health. If it's nutrition, it should be the nutrition specialist from the Minister of Health. Then we identify leaders in the community, influencers in the community. So these could be religious leaders, school teachers, uh, leaders of women's groups, uh, leaders of youth groups. And we train those, we call that training, training of trainers. And then they in turn will take the message back to the community and they will be training the community. Do they start up groups then in the, in the villages? In most cases, the groups have already been established. Okay. So they are coming from existing groups. And okay. then they go back, take that knowledge and information to the groups. This ensures uh, sustainability. The knowledge is sitting in the community. It's also coming from people that community members trust. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so they are more likely to listen and to change uh, when they see, when they hear and they receive the message coming from someone that they regard as a leader in yeah, their community. That's a good strategy. Yeah. Yes. So what types of lessons does Embrace teach the trainers that they take back to the villages? What topics are you covering? Mm -hmm. So uh, for nutrition, it's um, what I would say is basic information on the food groups mm. and what they do to our bodies. Specifically for children, we have a program called Learning Through Play, which was developed by Hinks Delcrest Institute. They are now a part of Sick Kids and they have a new name. It's a Toronto-based uh, organization who is a partner with us on okay. the Embrace project. So the Learning Through Play basically breaks down the very complex topic on uh, child development by using images and a calendar approach that shows 
where the child should be at a particular age, maybe at three months, at six months, the child should be able to lift their head, they should be able to crawl, right. and where they are physically and um, emotionally and uh, cognitive as well. So by breaking down that message and training communities on that, it's really very simple to understand. Caregivers then understand, okay, so what food should I be preparing for my child when they are at this stage in order to nurture and to make sure that they develop to their full potential? What activities right. should I be engaging with my child to stimulate the development of my child's motor skills? Right. And also we found that with the learning through play, it also encourages the participation of the fathers who traditionally tend to not have a very active role in childcare. So this approach is encouraging fathers to play with their children. So it's learning through play. It uses a lot of uh, play, for example. So this is one way where we are using nutrition, saying, okay, so this is what you need to be feeding your child in order for them to fully develop. And when we talk about feeding, I talked about poverty. Are we saying you should give them this type of food, but the people don't have the food. We have running with the nutrition uh, program, permaculture or kitchen gardens. Oh, kitchen gardens, yes. Yes. So basically the permaculture approach is about utilizing the resources, the natural resources that are around you within, um, for the most part, limited space, limited natural resources, but to be able to use those sustainably to grow vegetables. So for example, you'll find there's a kitchen garden that has many levels going up. So a multi-level kitchen garden where traditionally, if you only have that space, you just grow one level of uh, vegetables, whether it's spinach or carrots or beets. But now with the permaculture, they are able to grow much more within we're, the we're same. Gonna, we're going to put a photo of this up on our website page okay. with this podcast so that you they, people That'll can be see easier, yes. what you're talking about. Because <laughs> when, you, when you say multi-level, yes. it's hard to imagine unless you've actually seen Think it. Think of like a skyscraper. It is. It is. Yeah. It's a three-story garden. Okay. <laughs> I love that we don't leave it at just, hey, these are the food groups and you should be eating these foods. It's so much more effective to have the training side and the skill side where mm-hmm. This is what you need to eat. Now, here is how you can grow it yourself. Yes. And bonus, here are ways you can cook it and combine them to have a fully balanced meal. So it's training and fully empowering the people to take their nutrition and their health into their Mm -hmm. own hands. And even if Adra has to leave the community, like you said, that knowledge and those skills are there in the community and they'll remain there even if we have to leave. Exactly. I think that, that is so wonderful. Yes, yes. I'm really proud of the work that we are doing in the communities. Now, I know, Sharon, you've just returned from a visit to the Embrace Project in Rwanda. I'm wondering if you can tell us how the Embrace Project is going in Rwanda. In Rwanda, interestingly, we are working in an area that has been or maybe still is considered like the food basket of the country. There's a Mm. lot of uh, agriculture there. There are a number of estates. And yet we do have malnutrition. Mm. It's one of the areas where we have a high rate of uh, malnutrition in Yabihu district. And fortunately, the government uh, is recognizing that. And there have been a few campaigns already. So we are working very closely with the Rwanda government in this uh, province, uh, Western province, to bring down the rate of uh, malnutrition Mm -hmm. so that people are not just growing the food to sell it and uh, supporting them to grow also the right uh, types of food. But more importantly, doing something for the youth, being intentional about recognizing that young people have unique needs that require unique solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was uh, 
in Rwanda, I visited the Embrace Project. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was there, I took a ride in an ambulance. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, the ambulance that Embrace uh, provided for one of the communities. Our initial plan when the Embrace Project was uh, developed was to provide one ambulance for Rwanda. And the ambulance would be based in one of the health centers to go and pick up patients and also to transport patients who need to be referred to a higher level uh, center. So during my last visit, I had a meeting with the Minister of Health. And uh, she gave me a list of things that they needed. And uh, I think it was 24 health posts, which unfortunately no. we are not able to provide. And one of her specific asks was, thank you for the ambulance that you gave. It's working so hard. We need another one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Rwanda needs a second ambulance. Uh -huh. So my homework from uh, Rwanda is to see what I need to do to provide that ambulance within the existing uh, project. But uh, maybe one of our listeners of the podcast will feel impressed that they should give an ambulance to this community in Rwanda. That would be amazing yeah. because the ambulance that we have, it's doing amazing work, but it's only one ambulance. Mm. And uh, we need at least a second one to be able to come close to meeting the, the need that is there. And the good thing is that when we donate the ambulance, the Minister of Health is fantastic. They take over. They employ the driver. They mm. provide, the, they own the ambulance. So we donate it fully and then they take full ownership. They service it. They uh, employ the driver who drives it around. They take care of everything. We just need to provide the vehicle. And uh, each ambulance is just under 80,000 Canadian dollars. Mm. Yes. And prior to the ambulance, I don't know if this is the same community, but we heard stories about women who were higher up in the mountains, needed to be referred to the hospital down in the valley. How are they getting there? It's a very treacherous road, whether you're going up the mountain or down because the terrain is very mountainous in the district where we work. It's dangerous by car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a stretcher that is held by four people. Mm -hmm. Well, it has to be four men right. uh, because of the terrain, right? The road's rough and ragged. And, and they sometimes have to... they try and take shortcuts in between the actual cutbacks of the road. And if it's dark or if it's slippery, if it's rainy. I know, yes. Frank, you got some pictures of this stretcher we while you were in We did some reenactments yeah. while I was there. Okay. So uh, mm -hmm. if people are interested in seeing that, we'll put some photos up on, on this page as well. But there's a video or several videos that we've put that uh, reenactment into so people can see what a woman who's in delivery having complications might have to go through and maybe even be dumped out because one of the men slipped on the muddy mm -hmm. path yes. that goes downhill. Yes. So it's still not uncommon for women to deliver by the roadside. Wow. Mm. And this ambulance, the one that is there, is taking the place of some of those stretcher rides. Yes. Yeah. And this is why a second ambulance would be so helpful. Minimum of a second ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We mentioned in our previous podcast, the one on Mongolia, that my husband and I are expecting our first child. We're in our third trimester now. And I'm just thinking, as you're sharing all these uh, contexts and situations that pregnant women are facing in these countries, I'm just so grateful to be in Canada where healthcare is so easy to access. I cannot imagine being in labor and being put oh, in a no. stretcher, <laughs> taken down a mountainside, or not even having a person, a professional, or a place to go to where I can get the help that I need. Mm -hmm. So I'm really grateful that Adra is involved in this kind of work because within the last six months, it got very personal yes. for me. Um, so it's something I'm very proud of mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. we are doing. Yeah. yeah. And at ADRA, we share the values of the Canadian government. And these are also my personal values that uh, healthcare is, it's a right. It's universal. Mm -hmm. It should not matter where you are. Mm -hmm. But yeah. everyone, every woman should have a right to good quality maternal healthcare. The government of Canada is 
a world leader when it comes to maternal health and child health. Since 2010, when we had the um, Muskoka Initiative, which Government of Canada led and lobbied for within the G7 group of countries held here in, uh, in Muskoka, Ontario, that was where the funding started to contribute towards uh, preventing and ending child mortality and uh, maternal mortality. And Canada has continued to show leadership and commitment. The government has been putting in a lot of uh, time and a lot of resources. For example, the Embrace project is valued at uh, 26 million. And of that, uh, 20 million is coming from the government of Canada. So we are really thankful for that. And the Embrace project is Government of Canada's fourth largest project. And there is more than 30 maternal and child health projects that the government is supporting globally. Why do you think the average Canadian should be concerned about maternal health in a remote community in Rwanda or the Philippines, Myanmar, when there's so many... um, challenges that we're facing here at home. Why should the Canadian government or Canadians be concerned about the problems in other parts of the world? I believe that it's humane. Mm. In Southern Africa, where I come from, we talk about Ubuntu, humanity. We are all part of that humanity. And it's a human rights issue. And human rights are universal. They are inalienable. You don't have to behave a certain way for you to enjoy your human rights. You don't have to be born in a particular country for you to enjoy your human rights. And we cannot experience meaningful global development unless we bring in the other half of the world. Similarly, we cannot experience meaningful development unless we bring in the women who we tend to leave out, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So it's about universality. So if as a government and as a people, and I know we are committed to sustainable development goals, which are global, we have to bring in women and children from developing countries. And uh, as a Christian, I also believe that it is my Christian duty to do what I can for the least of these. All right, Sharon, thank you so much for being our guest today and uh, telling us about the Embrace Project Mm -hmm. and, uh, and your recent travels. Now, before we let you go... For every guest that we have on our our podcast, we like to ask a question about their travels, their experiences. I wonder if you could share with us, you know, you've traveled a lot uh, around the world. I wonder if you could share with us your impressions of uh, the world poverty that you have seen. Growing up uh, in Zimbabwe, I remember when one time a white woman came in our community because one of the neighbor's children had married a Caucasian woman. So she came and she was walking down the street and we were following her around. (laughs) And on my first trip to Nicaragua, I got there and it was bizarre. <laughs> Tables changed, you yes. know, things shifted. And you were the ones the children followed. Yes, <laughs> the children and the adults. Everybody wanted to take a picture with me and they wanted to touch my hair. They wanted to touch my skin. Yeah. Everybody was just looking at me and it was so awkward. <laughs> <laughs> so now you know how that woman felt that was visiting you. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. That was a turning point for me. And I really, I went back to that point where it was a group of us following her saying, hello. (laughs) (laughs) And what I learned from that is that we all desire the same things, Mm -hmm. regardless of how we look, that the parents in Nicaragua and Paraguay and Cambodia and Myanmar they want the best too for their children. They don't want to be poor. They don't like to be poor. And on my Cambodia trip, I took my 13-year-old daughter with me. And I asked her, I said, so what do you think? She said, the people are so poor, but mom, they love their kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, we are the same. 
we want the same things. We want the same things for our children. Okay, as we finish up our podcast today, uh, it's come to our question and answer period. We're uh, looking for you to send in your questions. There's a link on our webpage that you can click on to email us your questions about ADRA. So what is our question of the day, Michael? Uh, the question of the day is, does ADRA have any projects in Canada? Oh, yes. Uh, do you do any work in Canada? I get that yeah. question a yeah. lot. Yeah. Yes. yeah, people ask that What are you doing in Canada? Uh, as an organization, yeah. So, All right. who would uh, like to? I think I think um, maybe Heather. I saw the look on your face, yeah. and I knew I was being voluntold. <laughs> because you have been to um, one of our projects in Canada, or yes. actually, you've been to two of our. Uh, I guess two. You could say two of our projects in Canada: the one in Mans and and our Maple project. Yes, so. and technically, and you two have also been. I have also been to a project, but. You were there as well, so... Well, we can carry share, on, share the limelight. <laughs> okay. So some of our listeners may remember a time when ADRA worked with the local churches for community uh, projects, you know, whether it was a food bank or a clothing bank or what, what have mm -hmm. you. And then within the last two or three years, two years, I believe? Mm, yeah, about two years ago, it shifted to the... The conferences. The, the conferences, conferences now take care of the local community services programs. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So, but ADRA is still very much involved in Canada in the sense that when there is a large natural disaster and the local conference requests ADRA's help, we go in and we help in responding to that disaster. So, for example, uh, most recently, the largest one we can think of would be the Fort McMurray wildfires. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were there in the early days, like when people were being evacuated from Fort mm -hmm. McMurray and arriving in Edmonton, ADRA was there working right. with local churches to meet their needs, to work with the different shelters throughout the city and shelters in Calgary and shelters in Lac La Biche as well. And well, I I think it's actually providential that Heather was in Alberta when the fires had started. Yeah, that ticket. I remember that. That plane ticket was booked months in advance, but God had his ways and I landed mm -hmm. the same day that people were being evacuated. So yeah. I got to be very involved in that initial response. So, so your your original plans for your time in Alberta were, were shifted considerably. Uh, yes, <laughs> very much. And then, yeah, Michael actually got to go up to Fort McMurray. Yes, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, that one was it was um, a, a very quick trip. It was while everyone had been evacuated. We were going up to Fort McMurray just to to gauge. Drove up. We drove up to Fort wow. McMurray because the airport was closed, um, mm. and because there was no one there to staff it. And our the purpose of our trip was to see what we could do in in the city of Fort McMurray. Also, we had the pastor of the Fort McMurray Church with us, um, and we we drove up there. His name is uh, Pastor Guzman, mm -hmm. David Guzman, and um, we drove up there with him um just to well one the first thing we did when we got there was drive by the church to see if the church was still standing and uh it was it was a very surreal experience driving around a city that normally houses ninety thousand people and mm. is completely empty mm. uh the only people there were responders so firefighters there were some uh, medics um, and then there was police at every exit so that if you were driving up there you couldn't get off the highway mm -hmm. you had to register to get into the city um, and then there were a few staff from the municipality offices that were also there as well. But driving around burned out communities that used to have hundreds of homes and then were reduced to rubble. But the one that I found the most eerie was driving around the communities that hadn't been burned down and just going up and down streets that were completely deserted, um, streets that you could tell people were living their normal lives right up until the evacuation order came. So there was uh, there was one house that I saw where the lawnmower was still in a half-mow mm. lawn um, or there was a, a car with the... The, the convertible top down and just they they ran and wow. and left everything and so it was it was a very very surreal experience so what adra ended up doing we worked with the alberta government and we're given a one million dollar project to run the distribution warehouse in edmonton so all donated items clothing diapers food Hygiene everything supplies. basically if somebody donated something that wasn't money it came to our warehouse, um, was offloaded at the warehouse and then sorted and labeled and repackaged and itemized and, and then shipped to distribution centers within Edmonton. Um, and then once people started returning to 
Fort McMurray, we started shipping things up to Fort McMurray for distribution so people could start rebuilding their lives in Fort McMurray. I think the warehouse was servicing 10 distribution centers within Fort McMurray. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in total, we organized and and packaged and and processed over 14 million items with a team of somewhere in the vicinity of 700 volunteers that were coming in at different times and, and working through that whole process. In Fort McMurray, we were also providing counseling services for people that were returning home, and we mm. were doing that through the the Adventist Church in Fort McMurray. With trained counselors. And yeah, and, and pastors from around Alberta that would volunteer time to go up there and spend a week or so to do counseling services for people that had, had lost so much. Mm-hmm. So that's our response to the Fort McMurray wildfires. The, yeah, that's a, a very dramatic example of ADRA's mm-hmm. emergency responses mm-hmm. in Canada. We've also responded to floods um, and smaller wildfire incidences. Mm-hmm. But generally, we, we work very closely with the local conference and then with the local churches that are within those communities. They are our community liaison or mm-hmm. our arm mm-hmm. there. They're the ones who are from there, who live there, who know the context. So we rely heavily on the local conference and the local churches in our responses. So when those disasters strike, then ADRA is involved. But we also have two other projects going on. We are working with the Mamawaya Toskitan Native School in Alberta. That's a difficult word. <laughs> Can I hear it again? Mamawaya Toskitan Native School. It took practice. Yes. And okay. writing it a lot. Um, but This is the school in Hobima, Alberta? Or yes. Near Hobima. Near Hobima, Alberta. It's affiliated with our church. It's a school uh, from K through 12. And ADRA's role there, our partnership with them, is helping to fund their feeding program. Mm -hmm. So we um, try to make sure that the students get a breakfast and that they get a lunch. We all know that we don't feel at our best when we're not getting enough nutrition and when we don't have food to eat. And it's even more crucial for students to get that nutrition so they can focus and they can make the most of their time in school and uh, have a better chance at their future. So that's mm-hmm. what Adra's doing at Mamawaya Toskatan Native School. We call it MANS for short. It's a little bit easier to manage. And then just a year ago, we began the Maple Project, and Frank went up to Wikwemekong community on Manitoulin Island with me, so maybe I'll let him take over from here. Yeah, I was just coming back from Rwanda uh, mm-hmm. to visit the Embrace program, and our work supervisor, Sharmila, says, oh, by the way, you're going up to Manitoulin Island. And I said, Manitoulin Island, where's that? <laughs> <laughs> but it is a beautiful island, and we happened to go in the wintertime, so I didn't fully appreciate the beauty uh, until later in the summer when I went back several times. But uh, yeah, we entered into a partnership with a local First Nations community, and we went and visited a number of the schools in mm-hmm. that community and talked to some of the educators and some of the uh, people who are working with the youth. And I think, Heather, both of us were very impressed by what we saw and uh, the interviews that we had with the local community influencers there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their slogan is proud and progressive. And from what I saw and from what I heard in Wikwemekong, they're very proud of their First Nations identity. And they're very progressive in the sense that while holding on to that identity, they want to do what's best for their community Mm -hmm. members with a special emphasis on the youth. They Mm -hmm. say, whatever we do, we need to think of its impact up to the seventh generation. Mm -hmm. So they really have this long-term sustainability, responsible action. And then that comes out in their programming for their youth. And so the Maple Project is supporting existing activities with the youth to give them healthy activities to do. And by healthy, I don't mean just physical, but healthy social activities, Mm -hmm. healthy educational opportunities, to develop their confidence, their leadership, and their skills, especially in the high school where we are going to build a shop building with a view to developing their employability skills that they can then bring back to their community as well and and help serve their community in in that way. And then Frank also got to uh, a very unique experience. Yeah, while we were there that first visit, when we were talking to one of the employees there at the youth center, he was very enthusiastic and excited about a program that they do in the summertime where they take the young people of the community 
on a 10-day canoe trip down through the French River and into the Georgian Bay. And as we were interviewing him, it occurred to me that that would be a good video uh, mm. <laughs> to uh, film that uh, process of, of them taking young people out into a kind of a survival skills training where they're they're building the leadership skills of the youth as they experience this journey through their native lands and uh, I thought you know I'd sure love to be able to film that and so we started working on the idea of filming this program and long story short in August of 2017 I joined this 10-day canoe trip. You know, when they first talked about it, I got the impression I would be in the middle of the canoe filming the whole time, you know. <laughs> but uh, the day that I arrived uh, at the beginning of this trip, the leader of the excursion said, no, you're not going to be in the middle of the boat filming. You're going to be actually canoeing. So wow. I uh, ended up canoeing 160 kilometers, uh, something I wasn't mentally prepared for. Uh, or physically, physically prepared. No, I was not physically So either. it was character building for yeah, everyone, including you. I learned leadership skills, yes, just like the and youth. And resilience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But it was an amazing experience. If you have not taken a vacation in this part of the country, you need to take this trip down the French River. I really recommend it. We uh, stopped for the evenings wherever there was a campsite uh, at the right time and pitched our tents and uh, cooked our meals. And the way the program worked, the uh, staff that were with us, there was three staff looking after about 10 youth, and they had to do all of the work. It wasn't like the staff did all the cooking for them. The young people had to set up camp, cook. And these are young people who admit that they've never cooked for themselves. Wow. They've never picked up after themselves, yeah. you know, so now they're having to do it not only for themselves, but for the group as well. So yes. imagine what that is teaching them. Yes, we noticed that some of them were in withdrawal syndromes from being away from their video games and their mm. iPads. And <laughs> <laughs> How many days was this trip? This was a 10-day trip. And, uh, 10 days. So that's a long country time. Canoeing. Yeah. Yes. Sharon's just imagining 10 days away from her phone. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> For the most part, we were outside of Wi-Fi range on this trip. And so it... Uh, so literally the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Mm. yeah Sounds fantastic <laughs> for some amazing. of us. The, the most impressive thing about this trip, I think, is not only that you can go backcountry with a group of 10 youth and survive, and everyone survive, but the track record for those who participate in this trip is that they finish high school. That's yes. amazing. Frank got to talk to a number of them and, and they said, you know, it's because of the lessons they learned right. on this trip, the confidence, the leadership, the r resilience. Um, they talk a lot about what do you want to be? Now, how can you achieve that? So goal setting, but also not just, you know, pie in the sky dreaming, but how can you actually achieve that? When you go home in 10 days, three days, tomorrow, what are you going to do starting from that first day to achieve your dreams? And what can you do to help others achieve their dreams also and make the, our community a better place? So that is... That is just amazing. Yeah, it's something we could get wholeheartedly behind because it is in line with mm -hmm. our values for community work as an agency. Mm -hmm. I, one of the questions that the group leader asked many times throughout the day as the youth were struggling to keep their canoe going in the right direction was life is like a canoe trip because, and they would have to finish the statement, uh, or as they're pitching their their camp or cooking their meal. Life is like a canoe trip because, and they would have to finish the statement. So it was interesting. So I'd like to hear one of the responses. <laughs> <laughs> you have to keep going in the right direction, for example. Okay, wow. Because yeah. if you don't paddle right, you go back and forth, you zigzag from one edge of the river back to the other, <laughs> and you make your paddling uh, end up three times as, as long as, as anybody who's going in the straight direction. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So it teaches a life skill right there. If, if you want to have a successful life, you need to keep your canoe going in the right direction. In the right direction. Mm. Yeah. Right. That is our long answer to this question that we get so frequently when we travel across Canada to churches and schools uh -huh. and camp meetings. 
does Adra have projects in Canada? The answer is yes, we do. It's not the same as the work we do in other countries, and it certainly isn't as large of a programming as we do in other countries, but we care very much about our fellow Canadians, and we definitely want to do what we can to help the most vulnerable in Canada as well. And this program or project uh, that we have with the First Nations is really just a pilot project. Mm-hmm. We hope to grow this project and start working in other First Nations communities throughout Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if some of our listeners are passionate or interested in helping our First Nations peoples, uh, we encourage you to check out our websites on the Maple Project and see if there are ways that you can help us multiply these projects throughout Canada. All right. Well, I believe that does it for this podcast. I believe our time is up. Check out our website uh, page for today's podcast and see some of the pictures that go along with what we've talked about. And links to more information on the Embrace Project and on the First Nations projects as well. Yes. And send in your questions. If you have a question about what ADRA does and uh, why we do it, how we do it, send in your questions to stay in touch at ADRA. Okay, we'll see you on our next podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> How do you say goodbye in Zimbabwe? Multilingual. Salagashe. Salalahle. Salagashe. Wow. Salalahle. Ga. K A. You say it so beautifully, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds like I have marbles in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Salalahle. <laughs> <laughs>